0: good morning have you ever wondered why do people say god bless you after somebody sneezes it's this silly little ritual we have in our culture god bless you thank you right we we step the steps we do the dance where did this come from i i recently looked it up here's what the library of congress had to say There are two main theories to the origin of this ritual. Theory number one is the bubonic plague. (laughs) An early symptom of it was sneezing, and apparently Pope Gregory I offered God bless you as a prayer of protection from the disease and its inevitable death. Theory number two is superstition. Some ancients may have believed that your soul was in danger of exiting your body through a sneeze, and in this case, the blessing was a request for your personhood to remain intact. (laughs) There were others who believed that a sneeze was expelling an evil spirit from your body, and in this case, the blessing was a request to protect other people from being possessed by that evil spirit. Now, regardless of the exact origin of this ritual, how many of us stop to consider what it means to require or receive the blessing of God? What does it mean for God to bless you or for someone to pronounce God's blessing on you? Is the only qualification for God's blessing that I must sneeze Do I need to ward off sickness or do I need to ensure my spirit doesn't fly away or that others don't get infected with an evil spirit? Of course, nobody today goes through the ritual for these superstitious reasons, but we should be careful to ask what it means for God to bless us and what is it that makes us eligible to receive God's blessing? Is his blessing available equally To all who sneeze, equally to all humans who are subject to this inexplicable, involuntary reflex. Or could it actually be possible for someone to miss out on this blessing or even have it taken away? How can you know whether God will truly do good to you or not? As we continue our study through Luke's Gospel This morning, we'll take up these questions. We will see that God has a plan to bless the world with salvation. But that blessing of salvation is available only to those who require and receive mercy. You see, the only qualification for the blessing is that you require it. You need it. And, and if you know that you require God's mercy, the only rational behavior will be to gladly receive it. This is what God is up to in the world. God is saving and blessing that kind of person who requires his blessing and therefore receives it. And so we'll see in Luke chapter 1 verses 39 through 56 that there is first blessing on the one who receives mercy... And second, blessing on those who require mercy. Let me pray again, and then I'll read the first paragraph. Father in heaven, please help us now as we come to your word. Please fill us with your spirit that we might understand your mercy and your blessing, that we might understand how much we require it, that we might receive it gladly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we have blessing on the one who receives mercy, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb Of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now in this brief narrative. We have a simple greeting. Exchanged between two relatives. Mary and Elizabeth. But that greeting carries a lot of baggage. Mary is a young woman. Who was just told in the the prior passage. She was told by an angel of the Lord. That she would get pregnant. ...by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And she was told that her relative Elizabeth... ...who is a very old woman... ...is already miraculously pregnant... ...even though Elizabeth has told no one of this fact for five months. And Mary goes to visit her in her sixth month of her pregnancy... ...to celebrate the miraculous pregnancies... ...that both of them are experiencing... Now, the narrative here is rather straightforward, with the same set of actions being repeated twice. First, they occur in the narrative itself, and then second, they're repeated in Elizabeth's own words. Take a look at this. In verses 39 through 42, we have this sequence of events where Mary goes to Elizabeth, and then she greets her, and then Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb, and then Elizabeth blesses Mary. She goes, she greets, the baby leaps, and Elizabeth blesses. And that same sequence is repeated in verses 43 through 45, but in Elizabeth's words. Elizabeth says that Mary came to her, and she says that Mary greeted her, and she says that her baby leapt in the womb, and then she says again that Mary is blessed. I think that Luke tells the story this way, repeating this sequence of events. In order to highlight the conclusion, he builds up each segment to the end of this segment, the blessing of Mary twice in 42 and 45. In the first blessing, verse 42, her blessing is connected to the blessing on the fruit of her womb. She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So she's blessed because this child in her womb is blessed. And uh, Elizabeth specifies what she means by the fruit of your womb. Then in verse 43, when she calls Mary the mother of my Lord, you see, Elizabeth already recognizes the child in Mary's womb as her own Lord. And that word Lord comes with a lot of backstory as well. It's the exact Greek word used to translate the personal name of God in the Old Testament when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's the word that Mary used up in verse 38 to call herself the servant of the Lord. And you see Luke is closely connecting that child in Mary's womb with the Lord God himself. Even though it's a bit murky here yet, As to how exactly they're connected. But that child is connected to the Lord God of Israel. And Mary's blessing is tied to this child's blessing. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. At least the first blessing has that connection. The second blessing on Mary at the end of the passage, verse 45. Here the blessing on Mary is tied to the fact that she believed the words spoken to her by the Lord's angel. Now this would matter to Elizabeth because for nearly six months now, she has had to live with a husband who cannot speak. And he cannot speak simply because he would not believe the words spoken to him by that same angel of the Lord. And so Elizabeth celebrates the one who did believe what was spoken to her. The main idea here. In this, this text. Is that Mary is blessed by the Lord. Because she believed the message from the Lord. About becoming pregnant with the Lord. Mary is blessed by the Lord. Because she believed the message from the Lord. About becoming pregnant with the Lord. Now according to Luke. Luke. The way he's told the story so far, she did absolutely nothing to deserve any of this. Up in verse 27, she was simply a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. But this young woman trusted the proclamation that her miracle baby would be the holy son of the most high God who would reign as king forever. Now, if this story existed by itself and we were reading this alone, we could possibly end there and simply praise Mary among women. But clearly Luke has a practical agenda in mind. From these opening scenes of his gospel, we're still in chapter one. He paints, he starts out with two contrasting pictures of those who would follow their God. One of them was old and wise and an intimate insider, the priest Zechariah from the book's opening scene. And the other is young and inexperienced and further outside, this young woman, Mary. And the difference between them really that Luke draws our attention to has nothing to do with their age or their experience or their gender or their religious affiliation or their prior knowledge. The difference between them has everything to do with how they receive the word of God. The one who is blessed is the one who receives the word simply, even though it's not exactly clear to her how the plumbing and mechanics are going to work out. The one who is cursed with muteness is the one who demands additional proof and who initially will not receive the simple mercy of God on his family. By contrasting these two portraits, Luke encourages us to consider what is our posture toward the word of God concerning this child? What is our posture toward the word of God concerning this child? Are we willing to trust God and what he has said about this child? Or will we continue trusting ourselves? Will we receive his word? Or will we put greater stock in our own words? Because the one who is blessed... Is the one who takes on a posture of receiving mercy from God. And the opening words of Mary's poem, this next part, makes it very clear that this is in fact her posture. So we move on to see blessing on those who require mercy. Verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever and Mary remained with her about 3 months and returned to her home <clears throat> now in this passage we see Mary respond to Elizabeth's blessing with an extended poem it's a poem of praise to God which has led many to think of it as a song this poem or song has three parts to it. Where Mary, she, she speaks about who it is I magnify, what he has done for me, and, and then what he will do for all remaining generations. Let me unpack this. First, in 46 and 47, she speaks of who it is I magnify. In verse 46, she calls him once again, the Lord. And in verse 47, the parallel line in the poem, she calls him God, my savior. Now, right there in verse 47 is the first occurrence in Luke of a family of words to which Luke will give tremendous importance all throughout his book. Here, the form of the word is savior. It will come up later in the book as a verb, save, or as an object, salvation. Luke uses this word, this savior word family more times than any of the other gospel writers. And we'll explain the importance of these words as we work through Luke's narrative. But for now, here, where it first comes up, we should simply take note of the fact that this, this saving salvation concept begins with the Lord. He is God my savior. He is the one who saves. This is the great blessing that he has offered to Mary. The the blessing which Elizabeth pronounced on Mary. It is the blessing of a savior. God my Savior, one who saves, one who brings salvation. And then this poem of Mary's will unpack this word for us, showing that salvation is the thing that Israel has been waiting for ever since the promises were first made to Abraham more than 2,000 years earlier and as recorded in Genesis chapter 12 of our Bibles. Now, what does it look like to experience this salvation? What does it mean to have God, my Savior, as your God whom you magnify? She moves on to talk about what he has done for me. What he has done for me in verses 48 and 49. In verse 48, what he has done is he has looked on her humble estate such that now all generations will call her blessed in other words her life circumstances have now experienced a complete reversal before this happened to her she was beneath notice we would not even have known of her existence but now that this has happened she will be more talked about than any other woman in history The salvation of God involves a reversal of fortune. And not only that, but she says in verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. She says, the God of all power, he who is mighty, he has directed his power on my behalf. He has done something I would have considered impossible, making me pregnant while I'm still a virgin. He has done something that those who claim to be intellectuals, but are really impossible, really imposters, they will forever claim that this is fiction. He has done great things for me, his lowly, humble, and unnoticeable servant. And she ends verse 49 simply saying, holy is his name. In other words, his name is unique. He is special. That's what the word holy means. She is saying there is no other God like this. Now, Zeus or or Jupiter, as the Romans would have called him. He was known as a god to have had many sons through human women, but it was always via rape or some other unsavory and salacious means. It was never simply by the power of his spirit to cause a virginal conception, and it was always for, for Jupiter, it was always with the great, the powerful, and the beautiful with whom he could not fight off his attraction for. It was never with the plain or the average or the lowly young lady. And there were other Canaanite gods at the time, Baal and Ashtoreth. They were gods of fertility, but it was their people who had to do everything just right in order to be blessed. These gods did not themselves elevate the lowly or make them great simply out of favor or goodwill. Yahweh, the God of Israel alone, is holy. He is special. He is the only God who has done something like this. So the one she magnifies is God, her savior, and his salvation involves reversing the fortunes of the one who trusts him. He gives this young woman that which she does not deserve. He does mighty things for her, and he makes her the hottest topic among women for the rest of time. But he is up to something far bigger even than Mary. Here is where the poem really takes off. Two-thirds of her poem's lines fall into this third section where she talks about what he will do for all remaining generations. This isn't just for me, people. This is for all remaining generations. She says quite a few things in these lines. We need to notice first that this section of her poem begins and ends with a key word. It's a key descriptor of the work of God, my savior. Verse 50, she says his mercy is for those who fear him. And then she ends in 54 and 55 that all this is in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mercy is that key word. This third part of the poem is primarily a celebration of God's mercy and how it works. And this is why we can look at Mary here as an example of faith. Luke tells us that she was blessed by God because she received God's mercy. She she believed the word that was spoken to her by the angel. But you see, she herself anticipates God's work of extending this mercy, not just for her, but to all of Israel. She is a foretaste of God's blessing toward those who, like her, will believe his word and therefore receive his mercy. But look at this poem at how this mercy works. Because before you can receive it, you must first require it. In verse 50, you must fear him. This mercy is for those who fear him. In other words, you know that you don't deserve God's favor at all. In fact, you know that you deserve his curse, and you trust that he has the power and the authority to curse you and destroy you, and therefore you have a healthy fear of him. In verse 51, to get this mercy, you must not be proud. Lest your machinations be thwarted and your collected intentions be scattered. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In verse 52, you must not be mighty, lest you be brought down from your throne. Instead, you must be of humble estate. Again, you are not powerful or self-made. In verse 53, to get this mercy, you must be hungry. In need of food and sustenance. You must not be rich. Having everything you could ever want. And having no need for anything outside of yourself. Or having no need for anything that you can't simply provide for yourself. And in verse 54. To receive God's mercy. You must require help as God's servant. He has helped Israel. His servant Israel. You are not your own master. You are not the captain of your soul. You serve someone greater than yourself. You see, in these lines of the poem, Mary describes the flipping of the social order. Those who typically get ahead will be left behind, and those with nothing get everything. As we'll see through the rest of this book, As we keep going, I don't think she's saying necessarily that you're in deep doo-doo if you have access to wealth or influence in and of itself. She's not saying that. She's talking about the posture of your heart. This is why she starts there in verse 51 with the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. In my life, I have seen people who live in near poverty, and yet who are filled with arrogance and compulsive self-love. Those are still the proud who will be flipped to the bottom. And by contrast, I've seen people who have abundant material resources, yet who behave as stewards, as servants of a merciful master. As a missionary who raises financial support for the work I do, I have learned never to judge people by appearances. Because when someone looks like they could give a lot of money to support mission work, there is usually a reason why they look that way. And it's typically because they hold on to it. But the people who end up being the largest donors almost always surprise me because they live simple, humble lives in desperate hunger for God's mercy. And so they end up having more to share than meets the eye for the glory of God. The main idea here is that just as Mary has received God's incredible mercy, though she had no reason to deserve it, so too can you and I and our friends, and our neighbors, and our family members, and our neighbors, and our co-workers. We all can receive God's mercy, which was promised to Abraham's offspring forever. All we must do is live in a posture of requiring mercy. Because then we'll be ready to receive it when it's offered. Mary sees herself as just the first fruit of this mercy, of this blessing. She sees God extending it to all who require it and will receive it. The Mighty One, God my Savior, He will employ His great might to bring about these great things in keeping with His promises to Abraham and to Israel. So what does this mean for us? Let's talk about some application. I have one Chief application for you with lots of implications. And that application is this, friends. Please discard your dream of being self-made or self-sufficient. Please discard your dream of being self-made or self-sufficient. Whether you know Jesus and have been walking with him for years, or whether you're still just exploring him or you're young in your faith, please discard your dream of being self-made or self-sufficient. In our culture, such dreams are driven into us from the cradle to the grave. It's why so many people in this country start their own businesses And if you have a disagreement with the leaders of a club or a church you're a part of, you can just leave it and start a new one. It's why it's not considered cool to show weakness. And it's not considered manly to say, I love you. And it's not considered feminine to say, I submit. Now, there's nothing wrong with starting a business or starting a new church or a new club. These things can be wonderful opportunities to honor the Lord Jesus. But if we do any of that from a sense of haughty arrogance as though I must have my hands on the reins of my life, we must be careful that we do not end up on the wrong side of God's plan to flip things upside down. God's mercy is available only to those who need it. Later in this book, Jesus will say that those who are well have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And though it's deeply unsettling and often embarrassing, it's actually a great place to be in to say to, to, say to someone, please forgive me. It's funny, I feel like forgive is the F word for Christians. It's the word we will never say. Forgive. We'll say, I'm sorry about what happened. We'll say, I didn't mean it. We'll say, it's unfortunate that this happened. But I think one of the hardest things for a person to say is, will you please forgive me for Speaking unkindly, for failing to love you the way I ought, for acting greedily, for not listening, whatever it might be. <clears throat> children, for the children and the young folks here, I understand how difficult it can be to feel weak. It's hard. It's very uncomfortable to say that you were wrong about something. It's, it's, it's hard to admit that you're weak. I grew up in a situation where one person close to me would take every one of my weaknesses and use them against me. If I expressed sadness, I was mocked as a crybaby. If I showed an interest in something, it would be taken away from me. I learned that I was almost guaranteed not to receive something as a gift if I asked for it. Instead, if I really wanted something, I had to drop hints without showing too much passion about it and hope those hints would be picked up on. But friends, God is not like this. God is not like this. He loves it when we ask for help. He delights in our expression of weakness so he can show himself to be strong. He will not crush the lowly, but he lifts them up for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. Young folks, our God is a good father who will never mock you or take advantage of you. You can trust him if you will receive his mercy that you do not deserve. For everyone... Please understand that we will never grow out of our need for God's mercy. His mercy is not the only, it's not only the thing we need when we first become Christians. It is what we need every year and every day thereafter. I don't know about you all, but usually I would much rather get something right the first time than mess it up, require mercy, and have to try it again. And that's wonderful if God grants strength and wisdom to do what's right the first time. That's great. I'm not saying, please try to do wrong things. But you see that feeling, that embarrassment of requiring mercy, being in a position where you need it, that is not a feeling or a situation to be avoided at all costs. Sometimes we live at a such fear of that, that we will do anything. Now let's get, let me be really frank for a few minutes here, please. Because even today in our culture, God is still scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he is exalting those of humble estate. We can see this broadly in God's mercy to our society, where many evil men who have abused positions of power for way too long, they are finally being shown for what they are when courageous victims of abuse and oppression step up and speak out. And I praise God that our culture still has the sanity to reject and to despise certain perversions, at least in public. And the proudly powerful, the mighty men of Hollywood and Washington, D.C., and even in many churches of Jesus Christ these days, they are being brought down from their thrones. And this is to be celebrated. God's mercy is freely available to those who need it most, such as victims of oppression or abuse. Now let me speak to the young people once again. Folks, young folks, children, if you have ever been touched in a private place of your body or you have been asked to look at or touch the private place of another person's body, even if it was someone in our church, please tell someone that you trust about it. Please tell your parents or your Sunday school teacher, or me, or one of the other elders. What happened is not your fault, even if you enjoyed it, or if you think you deserved it. It is not your fault. And if that person told you that you would get in trouble for telling someone about it, they are lying to you. Don't trust them. On behalf of, Of the mercy of God, I beg you to please tell someone so we can help. And to all, at the same time that everything I just said is true, we must also watch out and make sure that we don't become proud, even in a culture that honors victims. We must be careful that victimhood doesn't turn into victimization because our culture is simultaneously growing dangerously close to an abandonment of the biblical principles of justice. And in in the name of social justice, sometimes we get close to abandoning justice altogether such that anyone accused of certain crimes is treated as though they are guilty until proven innocent. And the phrase, believe the victim, in some sectors, becomes a code for no evidence is required. And people can lose their jobs or lose their reputations or their livelihood simply because a social media mob decided that it was time for another public execution. This, too, is proud. And this, too, will be flipped upside down by God our Savior. The blessing of God's salvation involves mercy on those who require it and receive it. Mary shows us what God does with the humble who will only receive his message and trust him. They receive a blessing disproportionate to what they deserve. They become heirs to the promises to Abraham to bless the world and inherit the earth. They gain intimacy with the magnified mighty one whose name is holy, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, Jesus, he is the only one who can actually make available to us God's mercy. Hang on just a little while longer. We have almost reached Jesus in Luke's narrative. Don't fear he is coming very soon. May we be counted among those who fear this God. Those of humble estate who will be exalted. Those who are hungry and will one day be filled with good things. Those servants of God who will receive his help and experience the blessing of his mercy. Both now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before you, the mighty God, our Savior. Thank you for doing mighty things among us. Help us, Lord, please, to. To to understand your mercy and our need of it. Help us not to fear this position of requiring your mercy. And may we humbly receive it. That you may exalt us in due time as we trust in Christ. He is the exalted one. And we long to share his glory with him as he has promised. Please help us in these things to speak, to listen, to care, to honor you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.